0: Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Today we're wrapping up a series we've been in the past few weeks uh, that has been gathered around a common setting. So unlike other series we do where we talk about a principle or an idea over the course of several weeks, uh, we've decided to focus on the setting of the table or the setting uh, of meal times as they show up in Scripture. And we've said every week uh, it's surprising actually the number of times that meals show up, not only in like a theological sense, but also if you look at the account of Jesus' life, uh, the guy spent a lot of time hanging out with people and eating meals and, and drinking good drinks and having great conversation, I'm sure. And so we've been like looking at that setting and discovering what we can learn about how we live our lives based on how Jesus approached this setting of the table. And so on week one, we talked about who is actually invited to our tables. And we said Jesus was remarkable because Jesus interacted both with insiders and outsiders as it related uh, to faith. When Jesus walked this earth, he did interact with religious leaders and he had friends who were uh, kind of the religious elite of their day, if you will. But he also made all of them horribly uncomfortable because he interacted with people who were considered outside of the faith. He interacted with people who the law, as they interpreted it in that day, would have said he should not have been interacting with, but he invited them to his table. And what we said is that people who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus, which, which we admire about Jesus, right? That's so incredible, he's so inclusive. But here's the sticker for us. We also said if we want to follow him, that means people who are nothing like us should like us as well. And that's a little more tension filled because it means we need to lean into them, whoever they are for you, right? That that group of people that you're like, no way, we can't possibly love them. We all have a them, but you're called to love them too. That's what we said on week one. And that really we get to choose our posture that we can either be gatekeepers to the kingdom of God. We can be people who stand at the gate and decide who's in and who's out. And we have our checklist of what's right and what's wrong. Or we can take the posture of Jesus, which is to be a door holder. It's to be somebody who's been inside, who's experienced the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God, all that stuff we were singing about. And because we know what's available to all of us, we throw the doors wide open and invite in everyone always. So that was week one. On week two, uh, we talked about what we have to offer at the table, and we acknowledge that for many of us, it doesn't feel like a lot, right? <laughs> a lot of us, we feel like we're kind of living off of leftovers, whether that's leftovers in our time and our schedule or, or in our resources or maybe even in our talent. And when we think about doing something big for God, it's like, How could I do something big when I feel like I have so little to offer? But we looked at this famous account uh, where Jesus took a little boy's lunch and he multiplied it to be able to feed anywhere up to like 15,000 people. And that from that story, we can understand that God can take our not enough. He can take whatever little bit we have to offer and he can turn it into more than enough. That he can use whatever we offer. And so our job isn't uh, to decide whether or not we have enough for God to use, but it's for us to bring what we have to the table. And for us to then get out of the way and let God do what only he can do with whatever we're willing to bring to him. And then last week, um, we kind of took a different angle and we talked about what can actually keep us from the table. What can actually keep us from those moments of deep presence and connection, whether it's with God or with other people or even with ourselves. And we said that the number one enemy to our spiritual growth and to our spiritual health in our world today might just be hurry that all of us are running at such a frantic pace. It's hard to be mindful of the things that really matter the most and the things that really uh, fill our souls. And so we said last week that the pace of our life should actually match the pace of Jesus's life, that Jesus was never hurried, even though he had the most important work in the world to do. Somehow he managed to control his pace and always have space to reconnect with God and create space for himself and create space for people who matter. So we talked about this um, specifically in terms of how we arrange our priorities, when we actually make those decisions about what goes on the calendar and what doesn't. And here's where it got, again, a little tension-filled and a little difficult. (laughs) We said that we always have time for whatever we do first. that we all get the same 24 hours every single day, and all of us have time for whatever we choose first. So it's really not an issue of how much time we get because we all get the same amount of time. It's an issue or it's a question of what we're ultimately gonna do with it. And in fact, kind of a reverse exercise of what we talked about last week is if you were actually to like maybe do a uh, time audit this week and look at your calendar, it's a holiday week, so it might be a bad week for it. Uh, But if you look at your calendar, it's kind of like looking at your money. Jesus said that uh, where our treasure goes, it reveals where our heart is. I think the same thing's true for our time. When we look at where we invest these limited resources we have, like our money and our time, it actually shows us what we value most. So that's what we talked about last week. As we wrap up today, um, what I want to talk about is actually the meaning that we can find at the table kind of like the why behind what we do when we gather together and when we connect with one another. And I think it's like a great week for us to do this because it is Thanksgiving week and I've had meals on my mind because we've got food to prep and then thankfully food to eat and food to enjoy and people to enjoy somewhere along the way too, right? Uh, But as I was thinking about it, I was thinking for my family, I feel like Thanksgiving is one of those meals where there's almost like symbolic dishes that show up at the table. I don't know if that's how it works for your family, but for me it's like there's certain dishes that are associated with certain people in my family. Uh, it's You know, some of you do this in your family where you're dividing up who's bringing what, and you make sure that, like, Aunt Sharon doesn't bring the green bean casserole because she burns it every year, whatever it may be. Uh, I was thinking about it like my uncle every year. It's like he alternates. It's either uh, corn casserole or green bean casserole, and I am team corn casserole. It's hard to do that one wrong for me. Uh, I was thinking as well, uh, maybe on a little more of the sentimental side of things, about my great-grandma. We called her Nana. She lived to be 97 years old, but every single Thanksgiving, Nana was the one who brought this stuff to the table. It's very polarizing. Cranberry sauce, right? Just like show of hands. Who are my cranberry sauce people? Okay, yeah, it's like 50-50. I I was like even run through, like I think it was Lindsay and Autumn were standing in front of me, and Autumn's like, gross, and Lindsay's like, yum. It's like that's just how cranberry sauce is for us, but um, when I was a kid, I definitely felt like gross about cranberry sauce, and it was like, what is this stuff, and it's bitter, and I don't get it. Uh, But I can remember after my Nana passed away, the next Thanksgiving, it was like the torch was passed, and my grandma that year prepped the cranberry sauce. And in this little way, it was sitting at the table, and it was like this reminder of who my great-grandmother was, right? And every year, it shows up. And for me, for some reason, every year, I see that cranberry sauce. I like it now, okay? My palate has grown a little bit since I was 12. Uh, But every year, I see that at the table, and I'm reminded of my great-grandma, because tables and meals and gathering together, it's really not just about the meal, is it? There's more significance to be found behind it, and this is just a small example of how there's something on my table every year that's actually packed with meaning beyond what it would just look like on the surface. Uh, on a much more lighthearted note, I was also thinking about another uh, Thanksgiving week tradition that I had with some of my friends a few years back. Uh, we, in our like earnestness to try and follow Jesus well and thinking we were super important and able to really show the counter culture to what happens right after Thanksgiving, Uh, me and a group of my friends decided that we were going to have this new ritual every Black Friday when all the crazy people got out and they were lined up around Target at like 5 a.m. back in the day. Remember when Black Friday was just on one day? That's what I was talking about. So uh, we decided, hey, we're going to show a different example, right? So we're going to go out and we're going to make a whole bunch of hot chocolate and some coffee and we're going to run down that line as people are waiting to go get stuff and we're going to give stuff. We're just going to freely give away, and we thought this is going to change the world, right? Uh, So it actually just made people appreciate the stuff they're going to get even more, but that's a different topic for a different day. But what we'd do is we'd go out, and me and my friends would, like I said, go down the mall line, and we would pass out this hot chocolate and just be like, Jesus loves you. Here's free stuff, whatever. Uh, But we also had this ritual that was attached to it because before we went uh, across the street, when I lived in Kokomo, we would actually run across US 31, which is not a good idea. Uh, But we would run across US-31 and do all that, but before it, we sat at a table, uh, specifically a White Castle table. (laughs) Yeah, so me and my friends would get a couple of these bad boys, the Crave Case, if you've never had it, It's a life experience, okay? You've got to embrace it sometime along the way. We would get these Crave cases and we would just eat tons of gross, feel slightly pre-digested sliders. You know, they're just like kind of slimy and gooey, like somebody already chewed it a little bit and then they packed it up. Yeah, that's what I love about them. So uh, we would sit there and we would eat those, but two years in a row, (laughs) there's this core memory that I have that happened, uh, where we were sitting there eating these nasty burgers in this restaurant And uh, my friend Ryan, who eventually became my college roommate, uh, the first year we were sitting at the table and all of a sudden Ryan opens the Crave case and just dunks his head in it and barfs everywhere, right? I mean, that's the proper response to White Castle, for the record. But he just opens it. We're sitting in the restaurant. It's just like, and we're all sitting there. I'm looking around. But the craziest part is nobody else reacted in this White Castle. It's like they were all just like, well, it's a Friday at White Castle. (laughs) There goes another one. So that happened to Ryan uh, one year. The next year, we were doing our thing, and we ate them, and he, like, I guess built up his tolerance throughout the year or something. He made it a little farther, but we ran across US-31. We all made it safely, and we were approaching Target to pass out our free stuff. And uh, I remember I looked back. Ryan was kind of behind me, and he was, like, just kind of walking, doing his thing, very determined. We were on a mission, right? And then this van drove between us, and as soon as the van was on the other side, Ryan is on all fours just (laughs) barfing all over the Target parking lot. And uh, yeah, so that's just free today. You can think about that. But uh, again, when I think about like the meaning at the table, for me, those are just like hilarious memories. And I don't really like thinking about the White Castle or the after effects, but I love thinking about those friends and and the laughter that we shared together, right? Again, it was a kind of gross table, but it was a table that was packed full of meaning. And uh, whether it's family memories or ridiculous times with friends or something else, I think all of us have experienced that feeling of meaning around the table, haven't we? All of us have experienced those moments, uh, and yet, I think the truth is for many of us, we experience that meaning in the moment, and it's really easy for us to lose sight of it as we go back to normal life, and as we just kinda go back through the rhythms of our days. It's easy for us to lose grasp of some of these things, again, that matter the most as we go through the pace of our life, and I was reminded about this. Um, It's a quote, it's one of those quotes that gets passed around the internet that I have no idea who actually said it first, but uh, the great theologian G.K. Chesterton is attributed to saying this at some point along the way, whether he came up with it or was quoting somebody else. He said, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. And I think that is so true, especially like, for what I do as a pastor. It's not like I'm creating new stuff all that often. It's just we all need reminded of what's ultimately true, maybe more often than we need to learn something new. And, and so, as we wrap this whole thing up today, what I wanna do is I wanna help us remember one of the most meaning-packed, important meals that ever happens throughout the story of Jesus. And, and, and I wanna help us remember the significance and the invitation for all of us, especially as we're heading in, uh, again, to the holiday season. And so what we're gonna look at together is we're gonna look at what happened at what's known as the Last Supper. And the Last Supper uh, is famously illustrated by Leonardo da Vinci uh, in this scene, and and it's been talked about, it's been explored, it's been examined uh, for generations, right? People have looked at this moment that happens at the tail end of Jesus's earthly life and earthly ministry. Uh, people have looked at it and they have like, drawn conclusions about what it all means for our lives today. And uh, I wasn't gonna out her, but I'll, I'll go ahead and out her. Uh, Sarah Benedict actually shared with me this uh, meme. You know how I love a good one. This one's a little irreverent, okay? So I was kind of on the fence of like, do we do this in church or not? But we think it's okay to laugh. We don't wanna take ourselves too seriously. But she sent me this uh, opinion on the Last Supper this week. <laughs> This person said, guys, I just realized the Last Supper was the first murder mystery dinner. <laughs> I'm like That's, that's kind of funny, right? It's like becomes this whodunit. But I'd also like my Roman Catholic parents did not find this as funny and thought provoking as I did. So there's room for both today. Okay, if you, you can laugh at that, you can also kind of judge me a little bit for that. It's all, all good. But uh, the truth is the events that happen in the Last Supper are actually a really huge deal. And, and they're not only a huge deal for us in our faith, but even before What happens after this meal, right? Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion and his burial and eventually his resurrection, even before all of that, this was a meal that was packed full of significance. We don't always talk about this or understand this in its context, but when Jesus and his followers gathered together, it was all centered around uh, this holiday that they were gathering together called Passover, That that Passover is like one of the big holidays that God's people have celebrated for years. And it's this moment that's set aside uh, to celebrate the way that God delivered his people from Egypt. That story that we talked about in one of our recent series, The Land Between, that God freed his people from slavery in Egypt and and drew them out and offered them life in the promised land. And so it was this uh, holiday that was on the calendar for the Jewish people. It still is on the calendar for the Jewish people where they remember the way that God provided in the past and and they experience freedom again. And uh, in the first century, when Jesus gathers around this table to celebrate Passover with his closest followers, it was kind of a bittersweet year for Passover because as you may know in the story, uh, God's people, uh, the nation of Israel, was actually occupied in that moment by the nation or the empire of Rome. And so they're gathering around the table for Passover to celebrate God's deliverance, to celebrate God's freedom, and yet they were certainly less than free in that moment. And it felt like God wasn't doing anything about it. So there's all this drama packed into the moment, especially when you consider that Jesus was at the height of his popularity. Uh, This is where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people are cheering him on. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And and some of them are even calling him the King of Israel, which gets Rome's attention, right? Because they're like, "Uh uh-uh. We're in charge, right? There's no king of Israel. And it gets the religious leaders' attention because they're like, whoa, 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 who does this guy think that he is? And and so the religious leaders and the high priests of the day actually end up kind of putting out this ransom for Jesus. They're like, hey, if anybody can tell me where Jesus is at during this holiday, we're ready to get him, right? We're going to stop this in its tracks. And again, Rome was interested. And so there's all this drama unfolding. And because of it, Jesus and his followers essentially went underground, there were these like, little pop-up incidences, like he flips the tables in the temple and some of that stuff we've heard. But for the most part, he was kind of in hiding and just bouncing from place to place. And, and then he gathers in this upper room with his followers for them to celebrate their Passover meal. And we'll pick it up uh, in Luke 22. It says, When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And, and that sounds like really theological and thoughtful for us on the other side of the story, but for Jesus' first century followers sitting around to gather for Passover, they're kind of like, what? Like, what? what is he saying? Like, cool, I'm happy to spend Passover with you too, Jesus, but what suffering? <laughs> like, like, where? where is this whole thing going? And what do you mean, like, next time we have this, the the meaning of this holiday is gonna be fulfilled, it's gonna be realized, it was confusing to them. And what Jesus does next is so extraordinarily uh, subversive. It is so like out of left field for his followers, we lose it in our context today, but it it was so out there for his followers that they weren't able to piece together the meaning of what Jesus was talking about until days if not weeks, if not months, if not years later when they were on the other side of Jesus' resurrection Jesus uh, goes on with this traditional Passover meal, and the text tells us that he took some bread. It was kind of more like a wafer or a cracker because it was unleavened bread. He took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it, and he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And his followers would have been sitting there, and like he's passing out the bread, and they'd be like, did he say what we think he just said? This is it, his body? Broken, broken for us? Like, they'd been eating this meal since they were little boys. Right? It's like somebody shows up on Thanksgiving or on Christmas, and they just change the meaning of the holiday. Jesus is like, hey, here's the bread that you've been eating for your whole life at this holiday. And I'm telling you, it's about me. Like, like Passover was a remembrance of God. It was a remembrance of what God had done in the past, and Jesus in this moment, it's like he smiles and passes out the wafer, and he changes everything that they knew up to that point. He, he says, from now on, when you do this, it's about me, remember me. This would be as absurd as if like this December, I was like, hey guys, we're planning our services for the year, Christmas is gonna be awesome, but instead of celebrating Jesus's birthday uh, this Christmas, we're gonna celebrate my birthday, Okay, so we're going to have an Eric's Eve service. And uh, if you guys want, you can write songs about me. Some Eric carols would be awesome. Um, I'll give you a list of all my favorite foods, right? And we'll bring it. We'll have a big feast. And and it's going to be amazing. Like, we're going to celebrate me this holiday season. You guys in? No, right? If I ever do that, leave this church immediately because it's gotten weird. (laughs) We've become the cult they think we are. Uh, (laughs) But that's basically what Jesus did right? Jesus takes Passover, this sacred holiday, and he's like, hey, every time you eat this from now on, it's about me. And I can imagine in the moment, they're kind of like, okay, Jesus, right? Like you've said some crazy things before. I don't know if the crowd's going to like this one, but they just like keep going and they eat their meal. And then Jesus doubles down on it. it. And the text goes on and it says, after supper, right? Imagine how awkward that felt. Like, hey guys, it's about me. Okay. But after supper, Jesus took another cup of wine, and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. And they would have been like, no, it's not. This cup represents the old covenant. If anything, this cup represents the blood of animals that was spilled at Passover. Because what happened at that first Passover is God showed up and he said he was gonna deliver his people and that if God's people wanted to stay safe in the moment that was happening, they had to sacrifice an animal and they put the blood of that animal over the door frame of their house and then the angel of death shows up and it's very spooky. Uh, and, And it passes over every house that has that blood over it, right? That's where we get the idea or the name. Passover. So they're like, no, 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 Jesus. This is a 1500 year old script, right? We've heard this as kids our whole life, and Jesus makes it about him again, right? Jesus says there's going to be a new covenant. A a covenant is essentially an agreement or or almost like a contract, it's a way that people uh, say they're going to relate to one another. And Jesus says there's going to be a new one. That there's an old covenant, which what we know as the old covenant was God's covenant with the nation of Israel where he says, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. And and God essentially said, like, here's the law and if you follow it, things will go well and if you don't, things might not go so well. And that was the old covenant. And and these guys sitting around the table, they went to Jewish Sunday school enough times that they knew that this idea Jesus introduces of a new covenant wasn't actually a new idea, but 650 years before this last supper at this table together, uh, the prophet Jeremiah had actually predicted What Jesus is talking about. Here's what Jeremiah said. He says, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, there it is, with the people of Israel and Judah. And this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So in the moment they're sitting at the table Jesus introduces this new covenant idea and again they're so disoriented and confused it's like they don't ask the obvious question but it may be a question that we're asking if there's a new covenant and if it's going to be different than the old covenant and Jesus is bringing it into being what's different about it right how is it going to be different than what was there before well Jeremiah again had already predicted it and already spelled it out in the next verse he says God says I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, God's gonna do something new. He's gonna kind of redefine the relationship and it's not gonna be a covenant based on laws and rules and regulations that need to be memorized, but he's actually gonna write those laws into our minds and into our hearts. It's a covenant of conscience, if you wanna view it in that way. And so back to the table with Jesus. He, he takes this glass of wine and he says this cup is representing the new covenant between God and his people. He's saying there's a new kind of relationship, a new arrangement between us that's going to be instated on this day, not between God and a nation, but between God and the nations, right? Not between God and a specific group of people, but between God and every individual who chooses to enter into this kind of a relationship. And, And so, to help you really get like how transformative and how powerful what Jesus is saying really is, we're going to have to get a little nerdy, okay? You may feel like we've already been a little nerdy. We're going to get a little nerdier, but please stick with me because I promise it's worth it in the end. Uh, In the ancient world, this idea of a covenant, there were essentially three different types of covenants or agreements that people entered into back in those days. Uh, The first type of covenant is what could be known as a bilateral parity treaty, There is no pop quiz at the end, okay, so you don't have to remember that at all. But a bilateral parity treaty or or covenant was basically an agreement that happened between two equals, right? They would come to the table together, and they would make some type of agreement where they both say, I will if you will, and and then they would enter into that type of agreement. So that's one kind of covenant that existed in the ancient world. Uh, The second time was really far more common, and it's known as a bilateral suzerainty treaty, A, a suzerain. Uh, is essentially a ruler or a leader or a king, somebody with authority. And so this type of agreement was not between equals. This was between somebody with more power to somebody with less power. This was a kind of agreement like where a king dictates the terms of the relationship. This was kind of the way that Rome and Israel were functioning in Jesus' day, right? Rome had the power, so they made the rules for Israel and what it looked like. This is how a lot of us parent, right? This is curfew. This is like be home by 10 p.m. because it's my keys and it's my car, and if you want to drive it, you're going to do what I say. There's this power imbalance, and you can like but dad all you want, but eventually you set the bar, right, and you hit it or you miss it. That's a a bilateral suzerainty treaty, which I'm not going to try to say anymore. Uh, This is also what the old covenant was, what God's relationship with the nation of Israel was, uh, that God took Moses up on the mountain, remember, and he gave him all the rules, and there were a lot of them. He came down with all these rules. You can read them if you want to look at, like, the end of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It's all recorded. This is the part of the Bible you fall asleep to. Okay, but it's all these rules where God's saying, this is what our relationship is going to look like, God and the nation of Israel. And and that's why the story of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, ping-pongs back and forth between them being faithful to God and then them not being faithful to God. And then they're faithful again, and then they're not faithful again. And on and on and on the cycle goes. They either follow the law or they don't, but there's this difference in power structure. And then there's a third kind of covenant that people entered into in the ancient world, and it's what was known as a promissory covenant. And in a promissory covenant, what essentially happens is one party Binds themselves to the other party for the benefit of the other party. Right? Like one person agrees to do something for the benefit of the other person, or one entity chooses to do something for the benefit of the other entity. This is like what your middle school crush was like, right? Because you probably wrote him the note that was like, "Will you go out with me?" Yes, no. They maybe wrote maybe back, right? <laughs> like, but you passed it around and you like just confessed your undying and unconditional love it's like, I don't care where life takes us or how far away you move. Like, it's always you, baby. Like, I'm never going anywhere. Or is that just me? Uh, That's what a promissory covenant kind of looks like, right? It's this like one-sided, I'll do anything for you, and you don't have to do anything to earn it. I'm going to enter into this agreement with you for your benefit, and it is unconditional, and it is unwavering. And the thing about covenants in the ancient world is typically they were ratified or they were put into place through the spilling of blood, typically the killing of an animal. And I know it's kind of gruesome, it's gonna get a little grosser for just a second, but basically the way that they made these agreements is something had to die in order to make the agreement official. This is where the phrase, let's cut a deal, actually kind of entered into our world uh, because they would cut an animal often in half. And uh, that was kind of like the signifying way that they entered into these agreements. They would cut the animal in half, they would separate the two halves, and then the two parties in the agreement would actually walk together and pass through the two halves of the animal. And essentially, as they did that, when they entered into their agreement, they were saying, it's kind of intense, they're saying, let what happened to this animal happen to me if I violate the terms of our agreement. Right? They're like, we're gonna walk through this and let it be as it was for this animal, for me, if I violate it in any way. And, and here's what's remarkable. Okay, in the first two types of covenants, whether it's between equals or a power and a lesser power, both individuals walked through to signify the agreement. But in a promissory covenant, only one party walked between the animals, because only one party was actually making the promise, right? Only one party was saying, "I'm going to do this for you." So Jesus is at the table, and he announces that there is a new covenant and the natural question again is which one is it right what, what kind of covenant is it is it like the old covenant where you have all the power and I follow the rules and if I follow the rules it goes well and if I don't it doesn't go well are we now equals God or is this something different Jesus answers that question and the way he responds he took the cup of wine and he said this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement Confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And again, at the table, the guys are like, what? Like, okay, new covenant, that sounds good, right? We need to change things up a little bit. I, I could do for a different arrangement. What blood? <laughs> and what, what sacrifice? Jesus is saying, I'll be the sacrifice for this deal. I'll be the one who makes this thing official, he's saying you're on the receiving side and I'm on the giving side and, and you don't have to do anything to make this new covenant reality, this new type of relationship with God happen except, except the gift. Another way to say it is Jesus is essentially describing what he's gonna do for these followers and he's describing what he did for us when he says it is 100% for you and it is 100% on Jesus. for you, 100% on him. And this is incredible. Because again, this isn't the way that God and people related up to this point. This isn't the way that the world worked up to this point. But God in a body, Jesus shows up at the table, and he says, listen, 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 something new is about to happen. And all of the burden is going on to him, and all of the benefit is getting passed on to us. We can enter into a new kind of relationship with him. And this is so powerful. It's so powerful. Uh, Jesus' cousin, John, actually captured it at the beginning of Jesus' story. Uh, his cousin is out in the wilderness doing his thing. He was talking about the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus shows up on the scene. I can imagine John looking up the hill and sees Jesus coming. And he shouts this out. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? John got it. He goes, whoa, 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 that's the lamb, right? The the sacrificial lamb, the one who's going to make a new kind of relationship, and he's going to take away the sins, not of Israel, not a nation, but of the nations for all of us, for all time. Jesus is at the table. He says this new covenant is going to happen, and and it's going to be my blood that makes it happen. And then the next day, the new covenant is ratified with Jesus' blood spilled by Roman nails and Roman steel on a Roman cross. And here's why we're talking about it today. It's because the meaning packed into that table can be so transformative for our lives. The meaning packed into that moment is the thing that can turn all of our brokenness into something beautiful. It is the thing that can change the story It's the thing that takes all of our messes and somehow like wraps it into the miracle of what God is up to. And it is what happens when we simply believe, when we simply choose to follow. It's it's the thing that that John, not Jesus' cousin, but Jesus' follower, got right when he wrote famously in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes can receive eternal life. That's all we do. We receive the gift. There's no amount of proving ourselves. There's no amount of cleaning ourselves up. There's no amount of getting it right enough for us to receive this gift from God. It's simply belief. It's simply choosing to follow. So as we wrap this thing up today, the invitation on the table for each of us, there's actually two of them today. And the first, for many of us, is to remember. Right, remember. Remember. Uh, Maybe this is new information or a new perspective for you, but for many of us, we've probably heard the story before. If you've accepted Jesus and you're trying to follow him, you've probably heard it before in some capacity, but isn't it so easy for us to forget? Isn't it so easy for us to drift back into religious activity where we've got to do more and we've got to be more and we don't have enough, and we forget to simply receive the gift that Jesus offered to us? There's an author and theologian named Ann Voskamp, and in one of her books, she wrote this incredible thought, She said, I wonder if all of the bad brokenness in the world begins with the act of forgetting. Forgetting God is enough. Forgetting what he gives is good enough. Forgetting that there's always more than enough and that we can live into an intimate communion. I love this line. Forgetting is kin to fear. In other words, forgetting is like a relative of fear that when we forget what is true, True, it's so easy for us to drift into fear. It's so easy for us to walk away from love and lose sight of what's ultimately most true of us. But she goes on, she says, we're called to be a people known by our remembering, a remembering people. Forget to give thanks, and you forget who God is. Forget to break and give, and it is your soul that gets broken. Forget to live into communion and you end up living into a union of emptiness. So what we're invited to do today in response to this incredible meal and the meaning behind it is to remember, or maybe for the first time discover, that you are invited into an unconditional, unwavering, love-based relationship with your Heavenly Father who created you, who knows everything that you've done for better or worse, and knows everything that you will do for better or worse, and he extends the invitation anyway. And nothing that you've done can take that away. Nothing that you will do can break it. It's all for you, and it's all on him. remember, it's on the table for us today. But the good news, I think, at least for our world, is it doesn't stop there. And if you haven't caught the drift yet, what we're leading towards is something that Christians have practiced for thousands of years in response to this meaning-packed meal, and it's something called communion. And communion is this moment where we do intentionally remember what Jesus has done for us, but it's done in the spirit of also embracing what it means for our lives on the other side. So we remember what Jesus has done for us, but we also choose to reflect. And when I say reflect, I don't mean like go do some spiritual esoteric thing where you just like meditate for a while. There's a time and a place for that, right? We kind of talked about that with Hurry (laughs) last week. But when I say reflect, what I mean is actually reflect God's heart for the world. Actually be like a mirror to Jesus and put on the likeness of Jesus in the way that we choose to live. That communion, when we receive the elements, which by the way, just to like get the logistics side out of the way, uh, hopefully you grabbed one of these on your way in, but if not, if you just like, raise your hand, um, we can run these over to you, so yeah, feel free to do so. Thank you, Sarah. Communion, uh, we often think about it in terms of remembering, and that's what we've been instructed to do, but what I want you to get today is communion is not just about looking backward. It's also an invitation for us to move forward in a different kind of life, this new relationship. It doesn't just change things for our past and it doesn't just change things for eternity, but it should change the way that we live right here and right now as well because the kingdom of God is right here and right now. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, he inaugurated a new kingdom that is at work in our world. And there's this idea that was introduced uh, by a a Catholic priest, a friar named Brother Lawrence, who wrote a famous little uh, book that made its way through Protestant circles as well. It was called Practicing the Presence of God. And the Cliff Notes version of what he was saying is basically that God's spirit has been unleashed in the world and that God's spirit dwells inside of all of his followers. And so what we're called to do is not just come into places like the Roxy Theater for an hour inside of these walls on a Sunday morning and experience God's presence, but the truth is that we can practice the presence of God everywhere that we go. That to be people who actually live in God's kingdom right here and right now means that we tune our attention to see where God is at work everywhere and to embody his presence everywhere. That's what it means to live in communion with God constantly, not just occasionally at church sometimes. And one of my favorite theologians says it in this way, a guy named N.T. Wright, uh, talking about this act of communion, but also its lasting impact on our lives. He says we taste the new creation on our tongues, and in our lips, and in our mouths, and in our bodies, so that, we can go out and do the kind of work in the world that helps bring in the kingdom, God's new creation. So what we're going to do together is we're going to remember that meaning-packed meal and and what it represented for all of us. And and to do so, uh, we're going to take these elements, again, that started at that first last supper and have continued throughout the church for generations, where we pause and we remember what Jesus did for us. And then we choose to reflect in our lives uh, what his heart for this world looks like. So if you guys would, a lot of times we do this with music, but I think together we're just going to take these elements in this moment. If you would peel back the top layer and grab this wafer. As Jesus said, this represents his body broken for you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter where you will be. It's all on him, and it's all for you. So take and eat this in remembrance of him. And if you would, peel back the next layer to the cup. Man, this cup is a big deal. I mean, Jesus' body broken is a big deal, but if the story ended there, it wouldn't be a great story. But it doesn't end there. Jesus rises again. And Jesus says it's the beginning of this new covenant, this new relationship, where we don't only remember what he did for us, but we reflect his heart to this world in every interaction. We practice the presence of God here and now. So if you would take and drink in remembrance of him committing to reflect him. Let me pray for you. God, I pray uh, just on this day, right, as we've been looking at the table, as we've been looking at these meals, as we've been looking at these moments in your story, I pray that we would get the meaning, that we wouldn't just treat your forgiveness as our get-out-of-jail-free card, <laughs> but that we would understand it was the beginning of something new, that you invite us to remember what you've done for us, that we have been made new, that we have been set free, just like your people were at Passover. You've brought an ultimate Passover for us, setting us free from the power of sin and brokenness in our lives. And God, may we also reflect your heart for this world, that we become kingdom people, that we become solution people, that we become people who bring your presence to work, not only inside of a church service, but out into this world through every interaction that we have. So God, let us know what to do with what we've heard and help us to practice your presence in the days ahead. We pray and we ask all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.